Welcome back to Practically Political. It's great to have you with us again. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield. Great to have you. Beautiful fall season. Yes. All right, Carrie, as you would say, let's get right to it. Mike Pence has been rumored that he it's a very high probability that he might testify against Trump in these uh, many indictment counts. And now that he's dropped out of the presidential race, that he has obviously a lot less to lose. And so I guess my question for you is, what would cause him not to testify? And what do you think the legal impact will be on Trump and then thereby on his electoral prospects, both in the primary and in the general? Well, these are all really good questions. My understanding is that Mike Pence was trying to not testify, but he had unfavorable rulings such that he will be compelled to testify. So I don't think necessarily that the election would have swayed him either way, although it makes him less distracted or occupied so that he can prepare for it. So I think, and, and the legal argument, as I understand it, was that he was uh, saying that I was shielded in my capacity of my official duties from having to testify because uh, of executive privilege. But the the court said, no, well, you, okay, you don't have to testify about a certain sliver of things, but overall you are going to have to testify. So I don't think it's so much that he has it out for Trump in the sense that now that he's out of the race, he's unfettered and he'll do it. I think it's more that he didn't want to expose himself to potential liability in any way by what he says. Um, but he's going to have to do some type of testimony. I don't think he'll probably say anything that we haven't already heard, though. That's the other thing is like, you know, he just sold a lot of copies of his book where he talks about what happened on January 6th. And so uh, in that respect, I don't think I mean, unless there's some classified information that neither you nor I, Dave, are privy to, I can't imagine that there would be any additional bombshells that would move the needle in terms of the case here. What do you think? Well, I think, well, and first of all, let me just take a step back and say, um, you know, Mike Pence, I never understood why he ran because he never had a lane, right? He wasn't, he was too Trumpy to get the old school Republicans like me to vote for him. And he wasn't Trumpy enough to get the MAGA crowd, right? So he had really no lane from day one. And also, I think what really killed him is the same thing that killed Tom Emmer, uh, who was the most qualified person other than Steve Scalise, perhaps, to be speaker was, you know, had the, he had the temerity to be a little bit of an old school Republican and stand up for democracy. And Tom Emmer wouldn't voted to certify the election and Mike Pence wouldn't uh, refuse to not do what the uh, basically perfunctory task of a vice president is, and that's to certify the election. And in today's Republican Party, that's what matters. It's not policy. It's not anything else. And so I'm sorry to see, I feel bad for Mike Pence in that way, but it was very self-inflicted. But to answer your question, I, I think that, yes, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's already out there. And I think that having people like, frankly, Sidney Powell and uh, Kevin Cheeseborough, as I call him, and uh, Jenna Ellis, and particularly Mark Meadows, I think those type of people who are really right there and we're in on the planning of the insurrection 
and the uh, attempts to and the plan to overthrow the election, the fake electors, all that stuff, where Mike Pence was not directly involved in that. I think they will have more of a, of a compelling testimony. And the other thing I would say is that I think this Georgia trial is the only one that I think has a chance to move the needle. And the reason I say that is because federal trials are not allowed to be televised. State trials are. So you are going to see Trump in court on TV during primary season. Now, is that going to change the MAGA crowd, you know, the people that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they'd still be with him? No. That 30 or 35 percent will still be with him. And it may, it may not hurt him in the in the primary. But I think it could have an effect in the general election because a lot of people would say, you know what? Um, I just don't think with all the baggage this guy has, I can I can vote for him again, and particularly if he's going to be a convicted felon or he's on his way. So I think that's what is the is the major risk. It's just another rock on the pile, so to speak. But how do you feel about the other people testifying? Yeah, it, it's interesting. I was on a uh, I don't even I think it's still yeah, it's still active. The Twitter spaces. I don't know if they're going to call them X spaces or not. But the um, like the little chats um, where you can Twitter users can log in and chat with each other in, you know, actual voices. So immediately after 2020 elections, there was a Twitter, you know, one of these little voice chats, one of the little huddles. And I was on there with some of my friends and Jenna Ellis was on there and we were all just talking about different things. There are a bunch of, you know, campaign officials and former officials and and I said something about, you know, something, something. And, and I mentioned and that Trump lost. So Dave, you will be happy to know that. And that really upset, that upset Jenna when I said that, because she agreed with everything else I said, except for she, and she said that she's like, here, I agree with everything you said, except for the Trump lost. Um, and, um, and I said, well, you know, he lost according to the rules, the way that the setup, he lost his appeals. There is a legal process to appeal that is by the constitution and he lost all of them. So by that definition, he lost. Do I agree with the changes that were made constitutionally in terms of changes to the balloting, using COVID as a cloak? No, I don't agree with those. But he lost all his appeals. So, you know, I, I think what they did in Georgia, the fact that they're pleading guilty, um, I think that that is very revelatory. And I, I, I hope, I hope that it will be a bulwark to prevent this type of this behavior in the future. Um, I don't, uh, the, the thing is like there, as I understand it, you know, they're getting off jail time with it. So I, I don't know if that means that Trump will, I doubt that Trump will plead guilty to anything. If anything helps, he'll say that it was these people who were doing it and he was merely following their advice. So you would have to show the criminal intent, which he would say, as he already has said, I was just going by the advice of my counselors. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to push back a little bit. I, to say the cloak of COVID is unfair. I think things like drop boxes, you have to remember in November of 2020, there was still not even a vaccine that was out. So people were really scared. And a lot of the stuff that was done to make it easier to vote during COVID was not a cloak. It was just to try to get most most people to vote. And that's the thing which the Republican Party doesn't seem to understand is that well, the, what, the, the goal was to get as many people to vote as possible. And when I say cloak, I mean the Constitution says it's the state legislatures that shall make changes and determine the time and manner of elections. That's what I mean. I'm not saying well, that 
by by that definition, I agree we need to keep people safe, but you can't you can't ignore the Constitution. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, anyway, and and then and I, and I think that uh, you know, as far as uh, Pence goes, he certainly has a reason to be upset because. Donald Trump knew when he when he tweeted Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do the right thing. He knew people were still at the Capitol and they were saying hang Mike Mike Pence. And I think if they had really caught him, I think they would have literally hanged him. So again, I don't think he has any reason not to testify. But he was just that he was there all along. You know, he he had this incredible uh, desire to rationalize everything to use religion as an excuse for things, to justify all Donald Trump's moral slips and and uh, character failings and all that. So, you know, he he kind of made this bed and now he has to sleep in it and he's, he's uh, paid the dues. But in any case, we will see what happens. Uh, I think it's it, the only effect will, will be in the general, but uh, fire away. Sure. Well, speaking on the topic of Mike Pence, so with Mike Pence's exit, we also had Larry Elder. He exited, which I don't think a lot of people even knew that Larry he, Elder He was, was in the race? He was running for president, yes. Oh, well, if you ran for governor of California, why not run for president? What the hell? Go for it. I love Larry Elder, but yeah. He so do I. Have, On he, TV. <laughs> well, he he, uh, he didn't have the electability for this go around in the presidential. So, and what we're seeing is that Nikki Haley is pretty much the only candidate that is having a a, a really strong rise and DeSantis is going down. But what do you think the end game is going to be here? Dave, do you think that there's going to be some consolidation behind anybody other than Trump or mathematically, it just seems unlikely given that Trump is still so dominant? Well, this is, this is a great, a great point to bring up because uh, it really will get to the point is, is the Republican party, are there enough people in there that really want to have an alternative to Trump? And the reason I bring that up is because let's think back to 2020, right before the South Carolina primary, and people realized more and more that Bernie Sanders was not electable, okay? And so Jim Clyburn led the charge, and literally Joe Biden had finished a distant, I don't know, third, at I think, or fourth at best in Iowa and New Hampshire. They all rallied around him, and they said, this is the only guy who can beat Trump. So let's get together. Let's all endorse him. Other candidates dropped out and you saw a remarkable unity in the party. And then after that, the nomination was his. It was basically over. Now, Republicans have a chance to do this. You know, as we've discussed and I've said on the show from day one, Ron DeSantis is never electable. He just doesn't have the personality. Uh, Nikki Haley and, and and the other candidates don't have a shot. Nikki Haley is the only one. So my theory is this. I think Tim Scott, you gave it a great chance. Larry Ellison's poured millions of dollars into your campaign. You've advertised more than anyone. Voters aren't buying it. Get out. Chris Christie, it's great that you got in, that you wanted to slay the dragon that you're instrumental in creating, but it's a little disingenuous given your record and your endorsement and, frankly, your smothering and smooching and sycophancy with Trump after all these years. A lot of voters aren't buying it. Please get out, okay? Uh, Doug Burgum, I admire your entrepreneurial spirit, but nobody's, most people still haven't even heard of you. Please get out. Vivek the fake, look, it was great that you got in. You made your point. It's great PR. 
you you know you'll you'll you might get a cabinet post or you'll 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 get something you've got your notoriety you'll at very least will have your tv show get out mike pence is already out nikki haley to me is the only electable candidate and by the way i'm talking like as a republican strategist here yes trump is now you can argue that the non-electability issue is less relevant because he's polling probably equal with Biden. He has a chance. I still think the chances are overall that he'll lose, but it's going to be close. Nikki Haley beats Biden seven to 10 points in every, every poll I've seen. So if you want a much more certain way to win, rally behind Nikki Haley. So that's my advice. Will they do it? I have my doubts, but there's an opportunity and four years ago, the Democrats proved you can do it. What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm curious. Do you think just like from a logistical standpoint, like from a sheer voting numbers, like is there an equivalent figure like Jim Clyburn who could mathematically do this in the Republican primary? Because I don't even know if that's possible. Well, I think what you would need is you would need one of the other candidates to be the brave one. You would need, frankly, Chris Christie would, would be the best and to, for, to come up and say, you know what? Listen, no one believes Donald Trump is less suited to be president than I. And I've staked my whole campaign in proving that. But the most important thing is to make sure Donald Trump doesn't get near the Oval Office again. And the best way to do that is for all of us to drop out and endorse him. So I'm going to take the lead. and I'm going to do it first. If he did that, then you also have a lot of people from within the party, like the Karl Rove's. The people that don't, they're the never Trumpers, the Bill Crystals, those kind of people coming and talking to the other candidates. I think you'd have a little bit of a domino effect. I think Chris Christie would be the most impactful person to do it first, but they all need to do it and they all need to do it this year. So you have a month before Iowa for Nikki Haley to really get her feet down and to establish herself as a, as as the uh, start looking past the primary to to the general. So yes, I think it's doable. The question is, will they do it? And unfortunately, I'm not optimistic when I've seen what's going on, the, the way the party has been operating. And even the fact that Nikki Haley is getting better. She's now criticizing the policies and the things that he's saying, but she still won't say his name. <laughs> what are your final thoughts? Well, I agree with you, Dave. I don't think any of this is likely. So I think the more likely situation is Trump is already pivoting to the general. And what's really interesting is that I saw one of uh, a billionaire, I forget the guy's name, but um, he had he was the one who had challenged Elizabeth Warren on her wealth tax. So he's very critical of progressive policy. But he ended up voting for Biden reluctantly because he hates Trump. But now he says if it's Trump Biden, he's just not going to vote because he thinks Biden is so incompetent, even though he despises Trump. He actually said that he thinks Trump should be in prison. Um, he just says he won't vote, even though he did vote for Biden because he thinks Biden's a total disaster. So that's where I actually think if you look at the motivated the motivation of voters right now, Trump Trump mo voters are motivated voters. And Biden voters are not motivated. There's just no enthusiasm for him. He's old. He's, I mean, you know how I feel about him. But I'm just saying objectively from a data standpoint, Biden voters are not excited. So the question is just, again, from a strategy standpoint, 
is there anything the Democrats can do to overcome that achieve, um, enthusiasm gap? Because I think a lot of people are going to stay home um, who, unless like 2022 was uh, like mobilizing around abortion. But the thing is now that people have had two years to absorb this big change and they're actually seeing at their state level, uh, you know, in the progressive states that a lot of them are actually having looser abortion restrictions. Um, and they're also, you, we're seeing an expansion of abortion by mail. So they see that their worst fears are not being realized. So I don't think it will be as much of a motivator as it was in 2022. So I think right now, I think it's probably going to be Trump in the White House again. But I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to, I I don't make pronouncements definitively anymore in the age of Trump. <laughs> I, I'm with you. And, and, and I would say, first of all, it is, I would partially agree with you on the abortion thing. But I do believe that I know a lot of people, you know, living in a pro, a very pro-choice state and spending time in pro-choice states like New York. There are a lot of people, and I'm one of who know, uh, who have friends and people who live in red states that hear these horror stories. And you're seeing, obviously, things like the Ohio initiative, which follows the Kansas initiative last year, where people are going to vote to enshrine it in the Constitution. So will it be as much of an issue in 22 Probably not, but I still will be. It'll be a driving issue. But I do agree with you. And 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 look, I a year ago, I implored Biden not to run. So I am. There's nobody as a never Trumper Republican who's more dis, disappointed by the fact that Biden's running again. I think it's selfish. I think his history will be much less kind to him, even if he is reelected. And I do agree with you. If the if the election were held today, Trump would probably win. It would be very close. But there's still a year off. And I think it, the time, considering now it looks like these auto strikes are going to be settled, that could that could be a, that would have been a real thorn in his side. And we'll have to see what happens in the Middle East, because you have a lot of and we don't want to get into talking about that's a whole other issue about all these uh, protests, pro Hamas stuff that could uh, very that could divide the Democrats. And um, there's a yeah, but where Biden really does well is when people don't like either candidate they break overwhelmingly for Biden. And that's why the third party candidates this year are more of a threat than they are in other years. But I think that no labels, it's a great marketing campaign. I don't think they're going to do it in the end. And hopefully Cornell West isn't going to get that much traction, but we'll see. But I, I think that whatever the case is, even if Trump is a favorite right now, Nikki Haley would be that much more of a favorite. Nobody doesn't think that Nikki Haley is more electable than Donald Trump. And she's without the baggage. And she's the kind of, Republican that could bring new members into the party. I mean, this is the question I always ask. Who's undecided on Donald Trump? Tell me one voter, maybe your guy, he's the only one I know, who didn't vote for him in 20 that are going to vote for him in 24. There's no, ex there's no expanding base. There's no next generation or a group of voters that he's reaching out to. Nikki Haley is the perfect transitional candidate as the first woman president, a woman of color, plus she's a governor. Governors make better presidents. We need governors. They know how to run governments. So I'm very hopeful. And I would I would take a serious look at, at voting for her. Um, uh, you know, it would have to it would have to depend obviously on, on who the running mate was and a lot of the stuff. But we will we will see what happens. But fingers crossed, it's our only hope. But anyway, what's your next question? Or no, I, I asked first. Sorry. So my my question is we have a new speaker of the house. Mike Johnson, and uh, he's uh, historically unqualified. I think that's one of the reasons why they chose him. I think he won because people didn't know him, and there was also fatigue. 
He got all 220 votes. I hope that at least three of them would maybe hand stand out for principal, but that doesn't happen. So he's incredibly uh, religious. He said, well, if you want to see what I am, just pick up a Bible and read it. So my question is, do you think he was a good choice? Is he qualified? And where does the house go from here? Well, uh, in terms of actual qualifications under the Constitution, he is qualified. That is the bedrock of the Constitution. You know that wasn't my question. Uh, You know I love the Constitution, (laughs) Dave. Maybe you don't. (laughs) I'm saying qualified experience-wise. Come on. Well, he served in he served in uh, in office for a while, and and he led, as I understand it, he led the Republican Study Committee, the RSC, which is oh. you know, what a, a group of conservative policy wonks. And so he's put forward he put forward a healthcare policy um, to expand consumer choice and lower prices that I I respect. But I would say to our our listeners on this podcast. Go listen to him yourself. So I, I listened and I, I had an open mind. I listened to his opening statement. And um, the very first thing he said was that I want to acknowledge Hakeem Jeffries. That was the first thing he said in his speech. And he said, I want to work across the aisle. And I said to myself, well, we'll see if this actually happens. But I appreciate that he at least put that at the front. You know, the, the fact that he's he's acknowledging that it needs to happen. Um, and, and then also just listening to him directly, because I think so much of what happens, what people say about him, it's not actually things listening to actually what he wants to like himself directly. Um, so when I listened to his speech, I actually pretty much agreed with almost everything he said. Do I agree with everything he has said off camera or in his past? Absolutely not. But I'm just saying from his agenda and, and he, he's, uh, his place in the world, I think he actually, and, and actually, I know we're running over on this program, so why don't I lead into my question for you, Dave, which is that I actually wanted to ask you about him because I'm going to read you a direct quote from that speech, his opening speech, which, and he said, this is his quote, the greatest threat to our national security is our nation's debt. We have a duty to the American people to explain this to them so they understand it well. And we are going to establish a bipartisan debt commission to begin working on this crisis immediately. Close quote. I fell in love with that part of his speech. And I hope, Dave, that you would too. Uh, But do you think this actually has any chance? Do you think we could actually get Democrats to care about the debt? Well, again, you know, forgive me once again for thinking it's a little disingenuous when someone, first of all, he's been in Congress since 2017, so that's not very long. Secondly, he's never even run a committee. Thirdly, he has no real experience in doing what um, the main job of a speaker is, and that is being someone who's a deal maker and someone who raises money. So again, you know, good luck being Kevin McCarthy for every whatever you want to say about Kevin McCarthy, he at least had knew how to do those those two things. But again, back to your other question about uh, you know the substance. Talk is cheap, and I'm you know he is very mild mannered, and that's good. You know what what's the quotes I've heard? You know Jim Jordan in drag, or Patrick McHenry on the streets, or Joy, Jim Jordan in the sheets, or whatever. There's been quite a few clever ones I've heard. But you know, again, I'll just say all this talk comes out, but then what do we hear? Well. We're going to separate the Ukraine from Israel, and we're only going to we're going to tie IRS funding to funding to Israel. Excuse me, but are you kidding? 
will you please help me out? This is other, I mean, I understand that these guys want to allow rich billionaires to keep cheating on their taxes, but it was like Charles Grassley saying, the IRS is going to be kicking down doors with AR-15s going after small businesses. I, I just despise him for saying that. This is upgate, This is updating an, a superannuated computer system. This is ham, hiring more people so people don't have to wait two hours on the phone when they're trying to get to an agent. Why this this animus towards the IRS? Obviously, I understand that it's they need to protect their rich their rich uh, donors uh, who are paying you know, less tax than ever. But again, so you know the talk is good, but the walk so far just ain't there. Again, he said he wants to have a resolution that goes through next spring. That's great. Let's hear it. But again, this whole thing about spending, when he was winking and nodding during the most profligate presidency in ever, one quarter of our debt happened happened under Donald Trump. So this newfound parsimony is a little uh, hard to swallow. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, the truth is that CBS News reported that low-income Americans are five times as likely to get audited than any other filer, um, primarily because of the earned income tax credit. And small businesses are more likely to get audited. So he's not speaking. And, and sure, maybe he adds some rhetorical flourish that isn't, isn't you know, whatever. You don't like it. But th- that is the truth. Small and medium and, and poor people. And in fact, Black people are actually most likely to be audited. So that's the truth, Dave. And so and, and if you look at the pu- public sentiment around um, all of this also, and you look at actually how they wanted to spend the funding, they didn't want to actually spend it on helping with customer service for the IRS. So yes, they I did with that. But I'm I, sorry, I, that that's not correct. It's hiring more agents to most of them to answer the phone. The super the computer system is from the 80s, and again, for every one dollar the IRS is given, it, it can collect three or four dollar extra dollars in taxes. Okay, so and where is a lot of that money going to come from? You have corporations that are paying no tax. You have a lot of businesses. I mean, you have individuals that are paying very little tax. I think the big, the fairest thing to do, and because most Americans don't begrudge wealth that they think the system is rigged, which it is. And that's part of Donald Trump's success is that in their eyes, he's sticking his thumb in the eye, in the, in the sockets of the elites. And I get it. And in some ways, frankly, as David Brooks says, you know, maybe we deserve it. But the bottom line is, that the that the uh, if you had a thirty percent minimum individual tax and a fifteen percent minimum corporate tax, that's a fair tax for anyone to pay, okay? And that would at least p- allow people to say, oh, okay, this is fair. It would simplify a lot of tax returns. It would make it a lot easier. But as long as the Republicans have a say, that's not going to happen. Well, a lot of corporations don't pay tax because they have losses. So you're saying you want to tax revenue instead of losses. Uh, no, that's not it. They also get to fully deduct the cost of options, which I don't think is fair. I think you should be able to do that to a to a point. But again, 15%, every corporation can pay 15%. I'm, I'm not talking about corporations that have losses. I'm talking about corporations that made profits. Amazon paid no income tax. Salesforce paid no income tax. Those are not money losing companies. Well, that technically Amazon was. That's why I wasn't paying taxes for for most of its life. But I think we're going down a rabbit hole, Dave. It's more about the speech. Well, to answer, though, your question, yes. why is he tying the funding? Number Just one, stick it, it has nothing to do with it. It's like trying well, to it's like 
tying the, putting, getting rid of the individual mandate into that awful Trump tax cut, you know, stick to the task at hand. I mean, you know, that's going to be a non-starter, right? So if you really want to, if you, if you really want to walk the talk and, you know, you can make a good argument for just funding Israel. Okay. I think we need to also fund Ukraine. I think there should be more accountability, but that, at least that's a decent argument, but, but throwing this IRS thing in, it's just, it's the same old BS. So I haven't seen any indication that anything is going to be different. Plus, you have a guy who is a religious fanatic. I mean, he he I mean he's he wants to make you know he, uh, uh, gay sex illegal again. You know, I mean, this is we're going back to the fifties here. My God, that's gosh. not what he said. In fact, he was he asked did. about that. He was asked that he was asked about gay marriage by Sean Hannity, and he said Sean Hannity said, "Are you wanting to repeal?" gay marriage. And he said, no, he said, it's the law of the land. I'm not going to contest it. So he, and he asked him about his past statements and he said, you know, whatever uh, is my personal view is different from, he said, I respect the rule of law. So I think, you know, it's interesting because a, a lot of times people will say, oh, I'm pro, I'm pro choice or pro abortion in my private life, but I don't want to move that over into my public life. Well, why not, why not apply that logic? And that's my progressive friends who say that. So what, they don't want to have that same logic for him, whatever he views. Again, I, I don't agree with everything he said, but like uh, if, his, if he has private views and he's not going to put them in the public square, those are his private views. And Democrats like to do it for themselves, but they don't like to do it for Republicans. Also, I will say it is very common in politics. You and I both know for both sides to tie funding to something else. That's just how it often works. So you can't accuse him of being the only person of ever doing that. I didn't, I didn't do that. I do respect that he is trying to bring some fiscal discipline. So if you don't want it to be the IRS, which look at the American people, American people don't want that funding. So he is actually doing the will of the people. But even uh, if actually that, that, that's, that's not true that, either. Well, no, it's true. I've looked at the polling for this in terms of the, the people do not want this funding. They don't for the IRS that they're, they're upset. They, they actually are afraid of being audited because. But, of well, that's it. Again, it depends on how you ask, how you ask the question. If you say, well, the IRS audits more middle class people. Blah, blah, blah. Do you want it? But if you say the IRS is, can collect one dollar for every one dollar, it gets four dollars more in taxes. But again, all I'm saying is I never said that that people don't tie uh, meaningless bills or meaningless legislation yeah, what, or, or amendments to bills. All I'm saying is that it was a response to your question. You you said he really wants to get off on the right foot. Well, this is not the way to do it because he knows that's going to be a non-starter. And, well, and I so, think if, if, so Democrats, just, if Democrats want to 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 expand IRS funding, my question to them then is. But it was already passed. It's been signed into law. Yeah, but what he's it's not like is, they want to. It's, it's like saying, well, you know, if the, if the Republicans want to have a tax cut from 1917, look, it's already law. 2017, it's already law. You know, so you're just trying to repeal a law that's on the books. This is not no. a debate about something that hasn't been. That hasn't been passed yet, and it's totally irrelevant. So again, yes, I think I've said our national debt is a real worry. Okay, Republicans have created a lot more of it than Democrats, and when a Democrat is in the White House, they 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 could give a rat's patoot about it. So it's a little disingenuous. But yes, do I, do I think we need to address it? Absolutely. And if, my, so if Michael Dave, Johnson wants to you. wants to put together a panel, a bipartisan panel, I think that's a great idea. You know, and I just and I'm, I've said this before, I despise both Trump and Biden for taking entitlements off the table because discretionary spending is 14 percent of the budget. 
Military spending is 12%. That's off the table now. So what? And 76% is mandatory spending. So we're going to have a, we almost defaulted on the, on the debt over a debate, a debate over 14% of the, of the budget. It's ridiculous. It's why our political system is so dysfunctional. So until we put entitlements on, and by the way, some brave senators like Bill Cassidy have said, hey, 2034, these cuts are coming. So you can, it's like the, you know, the AMCO ad, you can pay me now or you can pay me more later. So we agree on that, but uh, just, you know, get a few things passed first build up some trust, then you want to come back and revisit the IRS. Then you want to come back and revisit other things. Do it. But you have to build up a little record of working across the aisle. And uh, the so far, the walk hasn't equaled the talk. But I'll give you the last word. Well, unfortunately, the saga of Kevin McCarthy showed what happens when you do reach across the aisle. When you do reach across the aisle, you get crucified by your own party and the party that you work across the aisle with doesn't care either. So there's really zero incentive to work across the aisle in a, sadly, in, in the way Washington is right now. And I, I'm not hung up on the IRS funding. I mean, I, I agree with uh, making sure that there are reforms there, but if it's not the IRS, then what about something else? And you raised an idea of, yeah, the entitlements. The point is what what speaker what the speaker's trying to do is he's trying to have some type of actual fiscal discipline instead of putting more billions of dollars in Israel to say that needs to have from cuts somewhere else. So if you don't like the IRS cuts, what else? And that's what I would say to Democrats. I have not seen them provide any sort of alternative. And so I respect the speaker for starting that conversation and starting the negotiation. All right. I, I think that's uh, that's a very good place to leave it. As always, spirit, spirited and respectful conversation. And I thank all of you for joining us on Practically Political. It's always so great to have you. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield, and we will catch you next time. 